So if you're one of the five people who follows my new Twitter, who follows my tweets, you know that uh, it's only a few days old. I'm not trying to take it personally yet. I didn't think I'd be in the triple digits for a while. But if you're one of the five people who follows my tweets, then you will know that If I have to explain to you what Twitter is, we'll talk afterward. Um, you will know that I experienced a Philly first yesterday. I did my first ever wedding in one of those houses along Boathouse Row. It's a really cool thing. I know a lot of clergy have done weddings there over the years, and yesterday was my first. And as soon as I left that wedding, I had to go into Center City, and I ran smack dab into absolutely hellacious traffic just awful and it was like a one it was like a four into one merge and i was all the way over on the right and it was classic philly aggressiveness territoriality mean-spirited you are not going to get my (laughs) you live in lancaster what are you talking about you don't know from this Classic territoriality. You are not going to get this spot because somehow if I let you in, that will somehow prove my weakness. That kind of driving. You all know that? Not that any of us have ever done anything like that, right? 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 Well, you know, I wasn't going to push it. But eventually, a car came along on my left and they, you know, blinked at me and they said, basically, go ahead. And when I waved and really recognized what this car was, I saw that it was exactly... The same kind of car as mine. A maroon 2007 Honda Civic. And I wondered to myself as I breathed my sigh of relief and merged into traffic. Was the only reason that I was extended this act of kindness was because of likeness. Yes. Okay. You say yes. All right. Well, we're actually going to explore that today. That's what today's movie is about, or at least the spiritual angle on today's movie, District 9. And actually, we're going to take a look at how limited and limiting an understanding of kindness based solely upon likeness, or at least superficial likeness, such as we drive the same kind of car, how really limited that is. So how many of you have seen District 9? Any of you? Any of you? All right. It is actually one of my favorite movies that I've seen this summer for spiritual cinema. It is a sci-fi picture that has, if you don't like blood, you don't like gore, don't go see it. It's, it's pretty cool, kind of horror kind of stuff. But I, I, you know, zombie movies are one of my sort of guilty pleasures. So, you know, I, I dig it. Um, the basic story of District 9 is that 20 years ago, an alien ship came to hover right over Johannesburg, South Africa. And it just hung there for days on end. And the interesting thing that we find out about those aliens in that spacecraft is that what if the aliens aren't like adorable little wonderful religious teachers like E.T. that teach us to find our own hearts and always know that we'll be home as long as we get in touch with what's inside here and that what if the aliens are not like the acid spewing awful monsters like alien or aliens themselves what if the aliens arrived in a state of absolute need desolation What if they arrived here on our shores, quote unquote, in this planet as exiles, refugees, huddled masses yearning to breathe free? Well, that is what happens in District 9. They arrive as the wretched refuse. Now, in the movie, they're called prawns. 
in a very derogatory way. They're called prawns because to humans, at least the humans in South Africa, they look like shrimp. They look like large crustaceans. And ever since they landed here 20 years ago, they live in absolutely desolate slums, which, if you know about South Africa, is something that South Africa is unfortunately notoriously famous for. Now, these so-called prawns are not luminous star people. They don't look like Jeff Bridges, if you remember that movie. They have faults. They have foibles. They become addicted to, of all things, cat food. Except cat food for them is like crack. And so they are exploited. They are exploited by Nigerian drug gangs because of their addictions, robbed of their money, and also because the folk medical practices promise that their skin, the actual flesh of these prawns, is somehow healing, has medicinal qualities. And on the other side of the social spectrum, they are also exploited by the white Afrikaners with a sinister, very sinister kind of movie sci-fi name, MNU, Multinational United. They exploit the prawns because they hope that they will be getting a jump on their alien technology so they can forge and find new and better weapons. Now, the setting of this movie matters a great deal. The fact that it is in South Africa with its brutal, brutal and still obviously still very much alive legacy of apartheid. The prawns, as they are called, are loathed equally by black and by white. They are the lowest of the low. And it kind of goes to prove that point that if we look for it hard enough, we will find in any society someone who we can always try to make lower than ourselves to try and elevate our own sense of well-being. There was a very, very, not terribly well-known Dr. Seuss story. It's not like Cat in the Hat. It's not like Green Eggs and Ham. Do you remember King Louis Cats? No? None of you? Okay, a few of you. King Louis Cats. Well, King Louis Cats is a cat, a la Dr. Seuss, and he rules over his kingdom with pomposity and arrogance And the one thing that King Louis Katz will not allow to have happen is that his beautiful royal tail cannot drag on the ground. And so King Louis Katz gets another cat, a subordinate cat, to go around behind him holding his tail all the day long. You see where this is going. Well, that subordinate cat says, I don't want to be the last cat on the totem pole. So that cat gets another cat to go behind them. And so you have three cats in a row. And then that third cat says, well, who's going to hold my tail? And on and on and on it goes until down. And I love this name until it hits little Louis Katzenstein. <laughs> little Louis Katzenstein. And little Louis Katzenstein has no one to hold his tail because he is the last cat left. And little Louis Katzenstein becomes a social revolutionary and slams down the tail of the cat in front of him. And it goes up the line that way, all the way back up to the king. Until everyone recognizes that no one is so subordinate that they have to hold the tail of the cat in front of them. Everyone, in a sense of equality, ought to be able to hold their own tail. In a more serious way. The same point was made by perhaps the most famous theologian of the 20th century, a Christian progressive named Reinhold Niebuhr. Now, many of you might know Niebuhr's more famous work, which is the serenity prayer. 
But he also said this. Now, he was a progressive. He believed in the possibility indeed demanded, calling from the prophetic tradition, the necessity of rooting out injustice in our society and particularly asking people who had too much privilege to take a look at the ways in which their privilege held other people down. But he also was very mindful of what we see in District 9, which is that those who are considered lower might look for someone even lower than themselves and treat them worse than they are being treated themselves. Niebuhr called this phenomenon the equality of sin and the inequality of guilt. To translate it, it basically means we all have the potential to be cruel, but not all of us have been cruel equally. And our goal, Christian or not, I believe this is what Niebuhr was saying, our goal is to let righteousness flow for all. To recognize who is being left out or put down. But in this society... In the society of District 9, even the slums of District 9, that's what it refers to, are too much. The people who live in Johannesburg cannot stand the squalor where the prawns live. And so they decide, rather than help them, let's, let's relocate them. Let's send them to District 10. And so they are deported to essentially a shanty town that is in reality a concentration camp. Out on the outskirts of Johannesburg, where people won't see what Multinational United is doing. Because what they are doing there is essentially experimentation upon folks. And this is where the main character of District 9 comes in. His name is Wikus Vandermeer. He is a stooge. He's a yes man. He does whatever the corporation tells him to do. He is not awful. He is not malicious. But he is weak. And he is intentionally ignorant. He's the son-in-law of the CEO of the corporation. And Wickes's intentional, intentional desire not to see what's going on and his pleasant demeanor is exactly the problem. He represents the absolute bureaucracy of malice. He's completely callous because he just thinks he's doing his job. He perpetuates cruelty without even stopping to think about it. He actually believes he's being nice to the prawns, being nice to the aliens, by helping them go to a new home. He does not see the reality. He chooses not to see the reality. And we can see in this illustration that kindness is something very different than what we call niceness. Pleasantness. Weakus is pleasant. He's easy to get along with. He'll do basically whatever you tell him to. But he does not have the strength yet to be truly kind and to recognize what he's doing. So the plot picks up in this movie when Vickis, when he's trying to deport these aliens, he's in one of their shacks and he is sprayed all over with this alien foreign substance goo. And so begins his transformation. He moves from human to prawn. And it's gross. It's a scary thing that's happening to him. The interesting thing, though, about the plot is that it is the reverse moral and spiritual process of what happens in The Fly. And I'm not talking the old cheesy Vincent Price version. I'm talking the tragic, scary, sort of awful Jeff Goldblum, David Cronenberg version of The Fly. In that version, as Jeff Goldblum transforms, he becomes not just seemingly less human in appearance. He becomes less human and less humane. Vickis' transformation is in the opposite direction. As his outward visage becomes less human and more prawn, he becomes more humane. 
his heart's and not just his exterior, begins to change. And he actually befriends a prawn family, a father and son who are trying desperately to save the millions of their fellow aliens. And actually, this part of the movie really reminded me of the movie we showed last week at Spiritual Cinema, Into the Wild. I know a few of you were there. And it was absolutely a beautiful beautiful movie. I, I was shocked by how struck I was by it. And actually, I ran right out, and I'm now reading the book um, because I really want to hone in on it when I preach uh, about it next week. But there's this one element that uh, Chris, the main character in Into the Wild, he reads. He reads a lot while he's out there exploring. And he's reading Dr. Shivago by Boris Pasternak. And there's one absolutely beautiful uh, bit of that book that he focuses on is really relevant to District 9 here today. Pasternak writes, she was here on earth to grasp the meaning of its wild enchantment and to call each thing by its right name. To call each thing by its right name. This is how we can tell Vickis is changing. Not just physically. The prawns are not prawns to him anymore. He learns their names. He calls them not his prejudged category according to their perceived ugliness, but according to their inherent worth. See, it is very easy for the humans, us, to mistreat the prawns because they are not attractive. I should have shown you a picture of it. They are like seven feet tall and where their noses should be, they got these warbly things that look like little crustacean tentacles. It's easy to marginalize them because they don't look okay to us. Now, unfortunately, this is where, well, as human beings, although this is sci-fi, this isn't that far from what we've done in our history. If you know the history of group oppression, racism, of any kind of group stereotyping, you will see that this is exactly what happens. You see the equation of one's outsider status with somehow their ugliness. If you studied this, you will see, and I don't repeat this obviously as an endorsement, but just to say how awful it can get. You see blacks as apes, Jews with big, huge, outsized hook noses, Irish drooling with stupidity, gays salivating the thought of getting their hands on exploitable children. These images are used to justify the dehumanization. They are used to justify cruelty. See, the first step, the first step, if you want to take away another person or another being's inherent quality of being, is to take away their capacity to experience pain. If you want to negate another person's being alive, say that they don't really suffer. Say that they don't really feel pain and you will have done and we will have done the first step towards saying they don't matter. Whoever the they is. I think this is the worst thing that we can do as human beings. This kind of cruelty. The kind that makes us indifferent and the kind that morally and spiritually robs us of our sight of what is going on in our midst. And this, to me, unfortunately, brings me to the Michael Vick situation. He played his first game last Thursday night. 
Now, let me say this. I'm not an Eagles fan. I was born in New York. I'm a Giants fan, and so I've got a little bit of outsider status here. It's easy for me to judge, I guess, a little bit. But I, I didn't watch really any of the game. But what I did see online was a segment of the news before the game was on. It was two sides. I mean, couldn't have scripted it any better. One side white, the other side black, screaming and yelling over each other. Yes, he deserves to play. Yes, we believe in second chances. Yes, he has paid his penance and should have an opportunity to resume his professional life. No, what he did is What he did is so unbelievably cruel, so mindlessly robbing another being of the inherent worth of its life through its callousness, through the callousness of intentionally setting two creatures against each other. Now, I wouldn't know how to square these two things. I do believe in second chances. I do believe that a person has a right to earn a living. And I do believe that what Michael Vick did is unbelievably barbaric. And so I think the best thing we can do is not forget. Not forget, especially, to be honest, if you are an Eagles fan. If you are an Eagles fan that loves the Eagles like I love the Giants, and you are really wrestling with your conscience, and you're saying, how do I root for this team? But at the same time, they've always been my team, and I sort of do believe in second chances, but still, it's so awful. Well, what I'd like to encourage you to do is to not let your conscience rest Easily. Do something like every game you watch this year. Make an important donation to the Humane Society. Write a letter every single, every single week after the Eagles play to the Eagles, letting them know that what they've done, as much as you're still maybe partaking in some pleasure from it, still doesn't sit right with you. That's the way out of, I think, the easy way of just arguing against and with each other. There was, if you saw it in the Inquirer this past week, a little piece by a woman named Frances Batista, who is the head of Best Friends Animal Society. And I thought she probably had the most wise perspective. She recognized Michael Vick was going to get on with his career. On a certain level, that was okay. But what she wanted to see was some sense of conviction, some sense of real humility that he understood how callous his actions were and that it is only in time that kindness can replace cruelty. She imagined him, if he was going to take it seriously, going down to the local animal shelter where the animals were waiting to be euthanized because there was no one to adopt them and cleaning up and scooping the poop and really caring for these creatures. She said these dogs wait For simple acts of kindness. These dogs wait for simple acts of kindness. And after reading this, I checked myself a little bit after seeing District 9 as well, too. And I thought, well, there's one more complexity to this, at least for me. Would we, would I, be so outraged if dogs were not so damn cute? I don't know, but it is worth pondering because it takes me back to where I began. And the person in the maroon Civic 2007 LX who let me into traffic. 
Kindness that is based on superficial similarities will soon peter out. It will lose its gas. It is why kindness is, I believe, the, not just an, but the essential characteristic of spiritual maturity. I love that when the Dalai Lama was asked to explain his religion, some of you know his answer. I love it. People knew he was a Buddhist already, and he didn't make reference to the fact he was a Buddhist. He said, my religion is kindness. (laughs) Nothing dogmatic, nothing doctrinaire. He said, my religion is kindness. In this, he echoes Jesus 2,000 years ago, who was asked a, well, not really a simple question, but a question someone wanted a simple answer to. He said, how do I get into heaven? Actually, if you read the Gospels, Jesus answers this all kind of different ways. There is just not one answer Whatever some dogmatic Christians may tell you, there is not one answer to this question, as Jesus says. And Jesus gives an answer told in parable form. I'll break it down for you. He said, essentially, those who will be blessed are those that can answer this question. He said, I was in prison and you visited me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you cared for me. His answer, at least in that place, has absolutely nothing to do with believing something. It has to do with practicing something. The reason I think Jesus said this is because he's understanding the limitations of superficial kindness. He's talking about the limitations of just being kind to those people who, in the most obvious ways, look like us, see like us, smell like us. He's saying, look deeper. Because if any of us, and perhaps some of us know this already, if we look deeply enough, At the prisoner, we are reminded of our own imperfections. If we get to know the hungry, we are reminded not just of their wants, but our own wants and our own unmet needs. When we see the naked and wish to avert our eyes, perhaps we do so with the naked and those poor because they remind us of how intensely vulnerable we are. And the fact that we enter this life naked as well, too. And the sick, well, if we turn away from them, perhaps it is because we are reminded that we, too, will die. And we are not different than them. What Jesus is saying here in an absolutely masterful way is that if we can get close to all these sorts of folks, and at times, or eventually, We're all going to be in one category or the other of this. If we can get close to these people in kindness, we might actually get close to the truth about ourselves. We might actually get truth to life and find truth in life. Because I love the way Jesus wraps it up here. He says, truly, as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. This is what Vicus experiences in District 9. And this is where the moral, the spiritual moral, if you will, of the story is really brought home. He knows that moment that was called in the Hindu traditions, the sacred scriptures, the Upanishads. And some of you might know with a little greater familiarity, the mouth of Joseph Campbell. He experiences the moment of thou art that. You are at the deepest level associated, tied to. What you behold It is the affirmation that the deepest level of seeing others, we will also see ourselves. And it is in that moment that Vikas is finally able to step outside of the cruelty that he has perpetuated 
moving beyond the superficial similarities or the superficial differences and into those deep affinities. And the prawns are no longer prawns to him anymore. They are beings who suffer. Beings who, like all of us, and pretty cool, like E.T., just want to get home. Just want to go home. Just want a place to belong. And because of this, he recognizes that their existence is just as important as his own. And the final act, he sacrifices his own comfort for theirs. Even as his transformation will take him all the way to someone who no longer appears human, but is humane. Without kindness, I think that all religion is just fluff. That's what I believe. Without kindness, our religion is fluff, or even worse, it's distraction. It's a distraction that makes us complicit in the sufferings of the world that we do nothing to alleviate. I'm so proud that our tradition, especially the universalist side of our tradition, understands that kindness, godliness, holiness, the sacred, it is very, very closely tied to kindness. John Murray, who founded the first universalist church in America, he said over 200 years ago, give them not hell, but hope and courage. Teach the kindness and everlasting love of God. Now, perhaps in his day, that was a new teaching. And for some people, that perhaps sounds like a new teaching. But I don't think a new teaching is going to save us, to be honest. I think the experience, our commitment to kindness as the essential act of sacredness, well, that might save our world. That is so awash in cruelty and indifference and in being trained to see what we think might be there. And not seeing what truly is there. Kindness teaches us, invites us, calls us to transcend the obvious prejudices of our eyes and of our hearts. Kindness invites us to see what is there and becomes a form of universalism. Because it is a form of what the Greeks called agape. Their version of universal or spiritual love. Loving another person, another being, based upon those deep similarities and not the superficial ones. It's also why I believe that kindness is the ultimate spiritual practice. As Emerson said once, and this was directed probably more to himself, because I hope you would recognize that thou art that. And Emerson was not kind. He could write about it, but he couldn't practice it. Easy to say, not as easy for him to do. But at least he was honest and truthful when he said, we have a great deal more kindness than is ever shown. And so I'd encourage us, all of us, and I include myself obviously in this as well. What kindness, what kindness are we not showing? You will not get credit at the end of your life. None of us will for the kindness that is stored up unspent. It will go nowhere. But perhaps we may get credit at the end of our lives for all the kindness that we've given away. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together.
O animating power of life and love that calls us out of spiritual blindness and into sight. That calls us out of callousness and into heartfulness. That calls us into the fullness of being. May our hearts and our hands be connected. May they flow and the channel be open. So that what is deep within here may recognize what is out there. And may we see beyond the superficialities and see the potentials and the realities of our communion with each other and with this life. Amen.